Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is building a portal. Not that kind of portal. Well, maybe. Um, the SoundHealthPortal.com is an amazing um, capability we now have online. You can go to SoundHealthPortal.com, sign up for a free account, look at, click on the services tab. And under there, you will find what are called campaigns. And those campaigns are free workups that you can get now. And they rotate through various campaigns. I think neuroplasticity, possibly bio diet. I can't remember if PTSD is there. There might also be the, the one about fires and smoke, ex- smoke exposure are there so that you can do two 45-second recordings separate recordings, which you do right on your computer through the portal, and submit them and choose the campaign that you want to have a workup. And within a couple of hours to 12 hours, is my experience, you will get a report emailed to you with all sorts of information that will show states of imbalance in, in regard to whatever you're looking for to start with in that report. And it's an amazing amount of information, which you then can sit down and read and figure out and or take to your healthcare practitioner and see if there is some information that is something that you're working on that gives the healthcare practitioner a, like, oh, I didn't think of that or that, that's way out of balance or too high or too low. And you can also go to soundhealthportal.com and use the free nano voice, which used to only be on, on regular laptops, Windows machines, and use the free Windows, I mean, use the free uh, nano voice on the Sound Health Portal. And I use it a lot to, I'll record a 45-second recording, and then I'll take a supplement or add some nutrient or nootropic, uh, wait about, meaning take it, and then wait about 20 to 30 minutes, and then do another vocal recording using the nano voice, and then compare the two charts to see if the new nootropic or nutrient caused some sort of spiking or some sort of issue in my vocal print. And it's really quite handy because it gives me a good like, oh, that might be too much, or maybe I should cut that back, or it shows no change whatsoever, which might mean I don't need it. And I just find it really, it's so great to be able to be out and just have somebody go on the soundhealthportal.com and be able to do vocal prints online, really, as a practitioner and or as somebody who has interest in the material. There's so many software packages now available, and that's what Sherry's working on now. So I really recommend checking that out. I will now say, and I say this every week that I say this every week, this is one of those shows uh, with Dr. Carla Marie Manley on the joy from fear that is really, really potentially life-changing I almost leave out the word potentially. It really can be life-changing information on how we engage fear and work with fear. It's an amazing, it's a great read. Um, A how-to of sorts of how to figure it out and look at it. So you can find this replay about 15 minutes after you hear the extra music. And you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on Sound Health Radio. And right below the description of today's show, you'll see a link that will take you back to the show notes 
and all the links from there. And or about 30 minutes later, you can also go to any of your podcast aggregators, which means iTunes, Pocket Cast, Dogcatcher, Google Podcasts, maybe my current favorite because it's easy and cross-platform and it works quite well. And search for Sherry Edwards or Talk To Me Guy, all one word, and the about 700 hours of shows will show up, but this will be at the top. And uh, with Google Podcasts, it's also easy for you to then share that show with others because once you listen to it, you're going to go, oh, so-and-so would really like this. And it is really amazingly powerful information. Life-changing, really. As a psychologist, author, and advocate based in Sonoma County, California, Dr. Carla Marie Manley is passionate about helping others create the lives of their dreams. Dr. Manley believes there's no topic too big or small to address head-on. From offering guidance for relationships, sexuality, work, and communication issues, to providing tools for healing stress, anxiety, and depression. Dr. Manley finds it's a pleasure to offer insights on even the most challenging topics. Focusing on overall health and optimal wellness, she also skillfully promotes mindfulness, stress reduction, fitness, health, and self-care. With a direct and honest approach, plus a dose of humor, Dr. Manley enjoys supporting others through the ever-evolving journey of life. Dr. Manley joins us to talk about her new book, Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. Welcome, Dr. Manley. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I am going to back into our conversation by asking a specific question for me. (laughs) I'm I'm on air with a therapist. How can I not help myself? (laughs) And I know you will relate to this because of I know about where you live. I live in one of the areas of Sonoma County, we've talked about this before on air, uh, that was very close to the Tubbs fire that devastated parts of Northern California. The area I am in was evacuated. My neighbors and I saw flames on the ridge top just north of here, literally at the end of my driveway. We all stood and looked and we saw flames on the ridge top and then we were asked, asked to evacuate. Now, when I smell smoke, Fear pops up. I have two. This is a, this is a two-part question. Mm-hmm. A, are the hormone cascades different for that kind of fear versus, I'll say, public speaking? And is there a way that I can engage that? Or I I understand that that fear is a more instinctual re- response because it is flight or flight fight. However, is there a way I can get my mind to let go of that a little or release? Or I'm not saying I'm anxious all the time. It's just like recently we had a small fire in Napa again, just two or 300 acres, and the sky was filled with smoke for a while. And many people were like, whoa! And, and it's scary. So hormone cascade, and can I recontextualize that? Thank you. Okay, really, really good question. Um, Because so many of us in Sonoma County, throughout California, around the world actually, have been increasingly affected by natural disasters, 
And research shows that the hormone cascade that you're talking about, the body does not differentiate between smelling smoke and being triggered as though it's a fire, even if it's a barbecue, right? And the threat, the hormone cascade that would happen if it were, you know, a bear chasing you or um, an actual fire. And that's the difficult part. And one of the things I specialize in is treating PTSD. And so we can absolutely, and, and I'm really with you on that. So not only do I have clients who, you know, give me the same sort of information, but I too, having been very, very close to the fires and evacuated for, you know, I think it was nine to ten days back in um, 2017, <clears throat> it is. It's hardwired in our system to a certain extent, and that's how PTSD happens, right? And so the way that I work with that is because the body is so intelligent and the, the primitive brain, the reptilian brain, operates so quickly and so much more rapidly than the prefrontal cortex, how important it is for us to realize that that instinctive response, it's, it saves us, but it can also do us in. And it saves us when there is a real threat, a real fire, you know, a real tiger coming after us. It harms us when we're going about our daily tasks and we get triggered by a smell, a sound, or, you know, our entire environment, which is very unsafe in many ways these days. And so, again, really trying to address your specific question, what can you do to slow that down? One of the things I think that, that you can do is to remember that the, the gut-to-brain pathway, the enteric nervous system, is extremely brilliant. And that if we look at that pathway, gut-to-brain and brain-to-gut, the messages, the gut sends 90% of the messages from gut-to-brain go from, from on that pathway go from the gut to the brain. Only 10% go from the brain to the gut. Hmm. So we can see how much we operate on what, you know, we heard for many, many years, my gut instinct. And so here's how I like to work with that. Is that simple? Okay, so you're out, you smell fire, or it's one of those nights where it's, or you smell smoke in the air. It's one of those nights, remember that, that, um, that scary night of the fires, there was that big breeze, that warm, heavy Anna-Anna mm. mm -hmm. breeze, right? And when that kicks up, you know, my, my instincts go, uh-oh, you know, not safe, because I really remember that from that night. And so for, for many people, they'll have a trigger of the smell of smoke, a certain temperature in the air, sirens, airplanes flying overhead. And so the idea is, okay, it's, it's fine that the gut's responding because it's trying to protect us. It's fine that the primitive brain is responding. It's trying to protect us. Then for us to pause right there, take a deep breath in, deep breath out, bringing the parasympathetic nervous system on board. And then from that place where we take a few breaths, we can evaluate. Now our prefrontal cortex is present, right? And we're able to say, okay, well, let me look around. Is there? So if there is a real threat, that space will give us the opportunity to act 
with our instinct, but also with our brain, right? And if there is no threat, we get a chance to tell our system, you're okay. You're okay. I'm in charge. Everything's going to be fine. And so by talking to ourselves that way, by taking our fear seriously when it needs to be taken seriously and calming it when it's not when there's not a threat we really can increase <clears throat> our sense of safety in the world does that does that answer your question that does and it it, it extends my thinking um we talked a little bit backstage but I, one of the things i didn't tell you that the audience knows is that i'm a master herbalist and i used to have in the 90s. I can't say the 80s because that's too long ago. In the 90s, <laughs> I had an herb store and a national mail order catalog. So I think always from that foundational healthcare practitioner, that side of the healthcare practitioner view. And one of the things I think about is that that fear, if we don't do it, the importance of everything that you just said is that if we don't address that and help recontextualize the brain, that chronic thing, that low-level anxiety is stressful on the adrenals, stressful on the gut microbiome. It just you know, Stress is such a sleeper of a stress on the body. That, sounds, that is rhetorical, but it's really true. I mean, it's really it, – everything that you said is so important. That's why everybody wants to send this to everybody they know, I think, that – that chronic stress can be really hard on a long-term basis on the body. Am I am I wrong there, or is that really that that's a very personal? I just think stress is such a sleeper that people don't realize that that sort of chronic, you know, where you either need a drink or a pizza or a pint of ice cream, or not that any of those things are bad in moderation, but trying to fix it that way versus just that thing you said right there where you take the deep breath and you go, no, I'm okay. Yes, and I do not at all believe that you're wrong. In fact, I think you're very right, and research proves it. So you and I know from you know both our, our histories and the wisdom that we've accrued over time that stress doesn't make sense. Chronic stress doesn't make sense for the body, the mind, or the spirit. And looking at current, for those who are really science-minded and want to know about the research, the research shows that chronic stress keeps our systems flooded with adrenaline and cortisol. And on a really simple, simple, simple level, we can look at it this, but like this. Our ancestors went about their daily tasks feeling really safe, really connected, communal in nature, right? We knew we were, our ancestors knew they were safe overall. However, every once in a while, there would be an invader, an intruder. And then, whether it was uh, another tribe coming in to take over territory, whether it was the threat of a wild animal, in those cases, adrenaline and cortisol would increase as a result of the fight or flight response, which we're all hardwired with. The threat would be addressed the adrenaline and cortisol would subside as the parasympathetic nervous system comes on board and the people would go about their business. Not only is that how we are intended to function, that is how most wild animals function. That we look at, you know, a wolf or, um, you know, any creature out in the wild, they go about their their day. Um, look at a zebra. The zebra, you know, 
eats and happy and joyful on the planes doing its thing, it will not show a fight-or-flight response until a member of, you know, the zebra family says, uh-oh, you know, something's amiss. There's a, a, a lion or a hyena lurking about. And then they all take note. They run. They do what they need to do. And then they're back to grazing. So, again, we're very much like that. And we look at our, you know, our primate relatives, so to speak, and you watch them. They play. They stay connected to each other, constantly touching each other, you know, really just showing each other love and affection and no sign of a real stress response until something negative happens, the occasional fight, right, that sort of thing. But other than that, they're really peaceful creatures. That is really how humans are meant to be. However, given our stress-filled world and the chronic stress that we're under, whether from work, whether from family dynamics that are unhealthy because people are overstressed, not enough exercise, improper food, food that's contaminated, all of that thing, all of those things, we become so exhausted. And you'll find this interesting. You may know this already. Just at the end of of, um, May this year, the World Health Organization has determined that burnout is now a syndrome, that it is a medical condition that will appear in the ICD-9, which is the the diagnostic manual for for practitioners around the world. So that came out from the World Health Organization just this year, just a few, just, you know, a month ago, less than. And so the really cool part about this to me is um, that we now, for many people who suffer from burnout, which is the uh, you know the accumulation of chronic stress that results in systemic exhaustion and they'll be working on the definition and fine tuning it and it ought to be in play in a really big way by 2020 which is good unfortunately they're only tying it at this point to work and work exhaustion however mm-hmm. as we all know we can become exhausted for a variety of reasons, right, and suffer burnout, whether it's relationship burnout, whether it's being a stay-at-home mom or a working mom burnout or stay-at-home dad or working dad burnout. You know, there's so many ways for us to get burnout. So I think it's it's really important for us to take it seriously, Richard, and I love the fact that you're, that you're on to that as well and that you believe, as I do, you know, in my head, right, and in my bones, I know that stress is a killer. It reduces our effectiveness um, psychologically. It re- reduces our body's ability to function properly. It reduces our ability to sleep. That required eight hours, you know, seven to eight hours of night that lets the brain cleanse itself and heal. So, yeah, you, you found something that's very important to me to talk about. <laughs> we could do a whole show. I'm blown away by that HWHO fact. I, I had heard yeah. it as a rumor, but I hadn't really heard it clearly stated. That is mind-blowing that burnout is now a, now a diagnosis. <laughs> yes, I'll send wow. you. I can send you the the report I received. It's it's a quick read. It's fairly quick. So yeah, it's lovely. It's really lovely because it gives not only clinicians 
something to wrap their arms around. You know, I'm not big on diagnosing people, right? I want to see each individual and figure out what's going on for them. Yet it will also give in the population a chance to notice and say, wait, I'm suffering. My relationships are suffering. My body's suffering. And we're, and I'll take us, if you don't mind, into another area that's a big passion for me. I am not anti medication. So just let me say that out of the gate. You will not hear me judging or telling somebody not to use a pharmaceutical. However, you will hear me saying (laughs) quite passionately that I do believe that the only people making money out of our very psychopharmaceutical and pharmaceutical oriented society are the insurance companies, the drug companies, and the healthcare systems that are making billions and billions of dollars off of the American people. Who is this harming? It is harming my clients, my friends, my loved ones, the people all around the world who are seeking support for mental health issues or physical issues. They go into their doctor. I'm not blaming the docs. The docs are often given about 10 minutes per patient, right? How can you do a thorough evaluation of another human being who is so complex in 10 minutes, write the prescription that is appropriate, if appropriate, and then send them out into the world? And this is a really frightening fact. 57% of people Mm. reach out for a mental health issue are given medication without psychotherapy. That is almost six out of ten people. And mind you, we're only counting the people who see their doctor. We're only counting the people who are being monitored. So almost six out of ten people who reach out to a care provider for psychological support, they are thrown a medication without being given an opportunity for psychotherapy. Why do they do this? Again, I'm not faulting the doctors. It's the system. Because to see a therapist who's a couple hundred dollars a session or a hundred, you know, however much the therapist charges, is so much more expensive. So doing that four times a month, you know, once a week, let's say it's, you know, a hundred dollars, right, just to keep the math easy. That's $400 a month. And that's what the person needs. Likely it would be more like $800 a month. But, but, and if I can write you a prescription that costs me, me being the insurance company, $20, then that's what I do instead. So here the insurance company has pocketed or the health care provider has pocketed a huge amount of money. The, the um, psychopharmaceutical company is saying, oh, cool, How, this is cool. You know, our pockets are getting full. And there is the poor human being taking a pill that may or may not be effective for them. It may not. It is target practice. That person has likely not been evaluated for for their genetic makeup and what will and will not work for them. So the poor doctor is throwing something at them that may or may not work. Now, here's the really sad part, (laughs) is that then the clients, if the medication works, then they're like, okay, well, this is helpful. But, you know, some of them feel ashamed, which... It's not their fault that they're using a medication. Other ones, and this is where it gets even more concerning, when the medication doesn't work or has serious side effects, then that person often feels broken. 
that person often feels like they are defective, like something's wrong with them, when it's not them. It is a broken system that is throwing products into these people's bodies that may or may not in any way be effective, and the research is frightening. So, okay, I'll get off my soapbox and we can move to something else. No, no, you've got me now. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll play tennis with you. Um, okay. <laughs> that then the, uh, there's, a, there's a, another category where, I, and I've known people where you've known them for a while, and then suddenly they're what I would call texture changes meaning that they seem different. They're still the same person, but in some ways they seem slightly different. And they then eventually down through conversations, they disclose that they've started taking a medication for depression or for something. I'm not picking on depression, just for something. And it changes who they are. It changes their personality, but they feel less anxious, so they feel less something. And yet they're not really better. They're just different, and they're feeling less. In combination with when I talk to them, because I annoy most of my friends by talking to them about things like, oh, diet, nutrition, and toxic load, and what are you drinking, and how's that, and are you eating organic? Um, <clears throat> they get this medication without any thought of looking at diet or, you know, they're, they're on a medication, but they're still eating, no, I can't use that word, bad food, <laughs> you know, high sugar content or easily assimilated carbs or, you know, there's, there's none of that in the view. And again, it's part of the system. I'm not blaming it on the doctors part of the system where you say in 10 minutes, it's not like you can do a lengthy intake or, you know, and what are you eating and how is your diet and how much caffeine are you consuming a day? And do you drink a lot of sugary substances? There's none of that even considered. No, It blows my it, mind. It is, it is, it's really sad to me because we, um, our culture, the media, it really promotes eating fast, eating quick. And so, the public is being indoctrinated to think that something is healthy when it's not. And I don't know if you saw an article in the Press Democrat, maybe it was two days ago, where the researchers are really trying to put together what makes fast food. And I'm not talking, you know, a drive through fast food. What makes fast food, packaged food so unhealthy? And they're just beginning to realize that a lot of it is what's never been looked at before, the interactions between the various foods and the preservatives put in the various foods. That, and that's not, that is just, they are just now starting to realize, oh, my goodness, we never thought about this. <laughs> and and so anyway, you know, I yeah. wanted to offer you also another piece of research. Um, I'm a big researcher. I love I love you know knowing what I'm talking about. And I had read a stat that I didn't really understand, where it was something to the effect that, you know, between 60 and you know 80 percent of doctor visits are stress related, right? And so I thought, okay, I really want to understand where this stat came from. So I did the research and tracked it down. And basically, this is really amazing. 60 to 90 percent of patient visits to their doc reflect emotional distress and somatization. So for those where somatization is is you know a new word simply means something held in the body where the body a, a mental issue becomes stored in the in the body stress becomes stored in the body but anyway 60 to 90 percent and 
Where that came from, actually, was a 1981 Kaiser Permanente study. And when we look at that, and that was 1981, right, where stress was, was big. but and, and it's interesting that there are no more recent studies on that. And I think that if we looked at more recent studies, we'd be somewhat, um, somewhat frightened because here's my question, right? If pharmaceuticals are the way to go, if they are the magic bullet, right, why is it that we have epidemic anxiety, epidemic depression, increasing levels of suicide? Why is it if medications and the healthcare system, if, if they do have the answer, if this is the right track, why is it that our teens are suffering from increasingly high levels of suicidality, anxiety, and depression, same with our millennials? And so clearly it's a rhetorical question. We don't, med- medication isn't the answer. Medication is not the answer. We like to believe it is because it's a quick fix. It's easier to take a pill than to revamp your life, yet it's not the answer. You're taking a the medication, I see it as a Band-Aid over a series of festering wounds, and as we all know, festering wounds are going to get worse if they're not addressed. So I really like to see, so what's the upside of this? Because it sounds like maybe I'm a little bit negative on it, but I'm not. My 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 whole paradigm is that I believe that medication can be supportive in the right situation. We can also look at our beings holistically and take, as you say, you know, you've worked a lot with um, more natural roots and, and nature has many cures for us. And so looking at our lives, which is one of the reasons I wrote Joy from Fear with such passion because I wanted to put the research out there. I didn't want to be afraid of putting the truth and the research and the stats out there so that a reader could take a chapter. If you want a stat-filled chapter, there's, there are, there's a stat-filled chapter for you that will give you all the documentation you need. And then if you want to shift your world from the inside out, If you're interested in making a different footprint in your own life and a different footprint on the planet, you can do it. We need to have the patience and the perseverance. But, you know, and that's one of the things I'm really proud of my life journey because my life journey has been riddled with extreme challenges. And I woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore. Not only can't I, I don't want to. And so as I revamped my life, maybe I wasn't able to pay very close attention while I was doing it, but as I was moving into my more transformed life, I became acutely aware of what I was doing right and what I wasn't doing right. And then I was able to distill that, plus with mountains of research, I I did a great deal of qualitative and quantitative research on fear so that I could understand, and that's why I was able to create Joy from Fear the way that I did the book, so that I could give my template to other people, so that if they wanted to transform their lives, they wouldn't have quite as a clunky or labored process as I did. <laughs> I will skip over that whole, I had a whole opening talking to you about your journey and everything, but we've gone through such an amazing journey, which we could do a whole other hour on. Um I will say to everybody, read the book. 
because it is an amazing journey. I mean, from finance to really having a family who wanted you to become an attorney. That was the thing to do. And you were really, ever since a kid, as I recall, you really were interested. You wanted to be a therapist. (laughs) And it took you a long time to get there. It was quite a journey. And along the way, you really discovered this piece about fear, which is quite power is tremendously powerful based on everything that we've talked about and everything else that we've talked about. Fear is really a, like stress. It, it's a stressor on the system. It's a drag. It can manifest into other things. I guess I'll start here with the, what is the, what is the importance of embracing fear's message and how do we find it? That's a really good question because it's the core. Um, So many times in life, Richard, for most of us, for many of us, we do what we need to do to get through the day. We just operate, you know, like robots, doing what we think we should do. And what I discovered that fear, we do have this, fear can be broken down into realistic fear, the fear of a real fire, the fear of a real coyote getting us, right, that sort of thing. But then so much of our lives are are controlled by what I call destructive fear, this sense that I should be doing this, a good person would do this, a happy person would do that, Um, I must do this, I must do that, I want to please my husband, I want to please my mom, I want to please my dad, Um, a, a strong guy would do this, a real man would do this, a good woman would never do that, right? All of that is destructive fear. And when we start becoming aware of its chronic, incessant, incessant, nagging voice, we become aware of its power. So what do we do with that? The first step is that you have just become aware of it. You've become aware that all of that darkness has a name. It's destructive fear. So what can we do with that? And as you, you, know, you mentioned, you know, my life, and definitely I was, much to my surprise, because I always thought of myself as a very strong, you know, tough, tough young girl and tough young woman and tough, you know, mature woman. I didn't realize that so much of my life was riddled with, hey, be afraid of God, be afraid of dad, be afraid of your older brother, be afraid, you know, do the right thing, be a good girl. And what I realized one day when I woke up was, wait a second, I want to question this. What about me? What about what I, what my inner compass says? And so that when we start doing that and look at what our inner compass wants us to do, which is always, always going to be something good and brilliant and lovely and wonderful and uniquely ourselves. So destructive fear is any voice that is going to hold you back, be harsh, be negative, be cruel, constructive fear is that voice that is going to be kind and gentle and loving and supportive and maybe assertive, right? We, you know, we as all of us can, can sometimes need to be really assertive. And then, so as we become aware that, that fear has this destructive side and then this constructive side, what we can do is begin to slow it down. 
And so not that I regret anything in my past because I realize that every step in my path has made me a better human being, a better therapist, a better person, a better companion, you know, a, a better everything because there's I have been through almost anything life could throw at a human being. And so when I'm working with a client or listening to a friend, I get them. I get them from the inside out. They might not know I've gone through something similar, but I do get them not just on an intellectual level. My heart gets them. And so that came as a result of constructive fear, of then listening. So giving you an example, okay, I want to be a therapist when I grow up. Right? I want to be a psychologist. And family says, no, no, you're too smart for that. Therapist, no, you don't want to be a teacher. You don't want to be a therapist. You're too smart for that. You need to be an attorney. You're, 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 that's what you need to do. Now, had I known about constructive fear at that time, I would have said, well, I hear your opinion and I understand that and that makes sense for you. But for me, my truth is really telling me that what I want is to be a psychologist. So you might not agree, you might not support me, but that's what I need to do. That would be constructive fear. And then transformational fear, which is all really the end result, is that I c if I listen to the destructive fear, if I then listen to the voice of constructive fear, and then I don't crumble, if I, if I stand in my truth and do what needs to be done to take the next step, and we all have this power. I'm talking about all of us, not just me. I'm talking about every human being. Then, once we take action on it, even if it's one small step every day, we will eventually transform because we are having the courage not just to know our truth, verbalize the truth, hear the truth. We are then having the courage to transform ourselves into that next level, and that's how we transform our lives. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's laborious, but it is also the, to me, it is the journey of life. I don't care how much money somebody has, how much cool stuff they have, you know, the color of their hair, the kind of car they drive. That's whatever, right? That's all external. What I care about is the quality of somebody's soul, and I think that's why medications don't work. I think that's why anxiety and depression are on the increase, because we're constantly being told by the media what we should look like, how we should act, what medications we should take to be happy. It's not working. We're forgetting the importance of being in touch with our own souls and our own inner truth. And that's how simple and basic it is. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it brought up as you as you said that. Thank you. Um, a nice soft lob across the net. Um, that the visual that came to mind as you were saying that is the classic ad on TV of a couple. I don't know. They're often lakeside, or they're happy and smiling and well coiffed. But then there's something, I forget, well, I have no idea what this is, but it's some sort of blue pill, happy blue pill, ED issue blue pill. And that if you take all this blue pill, then the birds come out and it's all happy and she's happy and you're happy and everybody's even more happy. And then there's a giant fast disclaimer at the end said by an attorney um, about how it might cause, you know, fibrillation and high blood pressure. And if you have, you know, blah, 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 go to the hospital. 
Um, I'm never looking to take anything that has a disclaimer if possible. But it's it's been so it's been so normalized that that is the fix. It's been so we've been so media hyped into you're not happy. Take this. You have ED issues. Take that. You're feeling this. Take some of these versus why. <laughs> you know, versus I, the uh, diet I'm and so, stress reduction, yes. and you know, let's look at some other things. And and yes, meditating is boring. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, not exactly boring, but it is. It is a thing. It's called a practice for a reason. Once you do it, then it's really helpful, and you like it. It doesn't have to be long, but it's there are alternatives. That's what I love about your book and about what you how you talk. Is that you're not it, saying take this pill and you know go ahead. Oh, I'm just, I'm just so with you because I hope I'm allowed to say this on the air instead of saying ED, erectile dysfunction. There, I've said it, so you might have to wipe that oh out. Oh, my God. Anyway, wow. Oh, my God, she used big words. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I look at that and at so many of the myths surrounding erectile dysfunction or lack of sexuality or lack of sexual intimacy. And I think that we as a culture have got it so wrong because we've become so accustomed to hookup sex, to swiping left, to swiping right, Mm -hmm. to the horror of people calling each other F-buddies. And that is a word I will not say because it turns my stomach right, that we take something, which is our sexuality, and I'm not judging any type of sexuality. I'm just looking at saying it is important for us to be mindful about what we consume for our brains, for our bodies, for our sexuality. And when we treat people as though they are disposable, we are treating ourselves and our planet as if it's disposable. It is all interconnected. So if we were able to slow it down a little bit and think, because as many, many people don't realize, they think if they take one of the blue pills that it will make them have strong libido. It has nothing to do with libido. It, those pills will only work once you've already become attracted, right? Once you've already become sexually interested. And so that's a really important piece and why some people don't have a lot of success with them. So where is the desire to connect and have sexual intimacy? Where did that go? It has gone by the wayside for many people because they say they're too busy, They're exhausted, but the reason they're too busy and they're exhausted is that for many people, they truly are working far too much for a whole other segment. They are very oriented toward self-pleasuring, whether it's pornography or something else, which, of course, saps sexual energy. To another segment, they are so busy watching TV or playing video games that that three hours a day that they're doing that hey, you could be making love to your partner for a half hour of that, right? So it's about our use of energy and, again, thinking that a pill is going to do that. And our culture, I believe, has become increasingly afraid 
of, of true connection. And why is this? Because we've become more used to connecting with our phones. We've become more used to connecting by computer, whereas in the past we would be sitting and talking to somebody face-to-face. We wouldn't be going out to dinner and having, you know, our table or the table next to us, everybody's pulling out their cell phones, right? It's So I really think that, you know, making the circle back to sexuality, I think that so much of what's going awry is that we're not being mindful, mindful of the cause and the effects of our actions. And again, if somebody wants a certain outcome, if you want to live a really disconnected life, and, you know, hypersex and, you know, one-night stands, that is absolutely your choice. But just don't be surprised if your soul ultimately suffers because I have clients who come in exactly to fix exactly this issue. And if you're missing, you know, a connection with your husband, your wife, your kids, your life partner, your, you know, your dating partner, whatever it is, maybe look at are you slowing down to make time for that person? Are you asking them questions about their life? Are you looking them in the eye? Are you going for walks with them? Are you slowing your life down to be present? And, you know, I'll take it back just really quickly to our primate relatives. They're always, con- you know, they're, they're, they're always connected. They are just beautiful. I had the pleasure of being, you know, around some primates last summer for little bits of extended time, oxymoron. But um, and it was lovely to see how connected they are, and how that is what people really want. Yet we we have the loneliness epidemic. That um, and so so many things that I think we're capable of correcting. We really are if we just slow it down and start paying attention and do more this is how simple i see it being do more of that which works do more of that which feels good and do less of that which is hurtful do less of that which brings you angst and that is really and i love that joy from fear gives actionable tips everything from things you can do for your diet things you can do for your relationships um so I, I, I think that we are all capable of it, Richard. Not just some people, not just therapists. You know, I think we are all capable of slowing it down and shifting things to, to have lives be a little more simpler, a little more connected. And I have so many questions, but I'm going to go here. <laughs> <laughs> How do we get to, uh, in Chapter 2, you talk about transformational fear, and you talk about three kinds of fear, types of fear. I'm not quite sure what the categories I would call these, but you have uh, destructive and on the three those three categories of fear. How do we how do we get those? How do we engage those? Okay. I, I love the idea of the transformation, but how do we recognize, acknowledge? I'm I'm like yourself. I'm big on research. I'm big on if I know something, then I can figure it out. Okay. And, and I think this is such a powerful area. Let me give you one of my favorite examples because it's one that most people can easily relate to. You're in a relationship 
whether it's a marriage, a partnership, whatever it is, right, a relationship with your boss for that matter, and you know something's wrong, it is something is not right, you're feeling stressed, and so you say, okay, what's going on? And that's when you start listening. So let's take it to a love relationship. And you realize, wait a second, my partner's being verbally abusive. My partner is being controlling. My partner isn't making time for me. My partner is being really self-absorbed, right? So you look at those things. And destructive fear would have you not pay attention to those. Destructive fear would just have you put your head down, get passive aggressive, or get silent or meek or throw things, right? Something that's not going to improve the situation. You know, have big battles and make up sex and, you know, all that crap, right? Um, very professional word there. So <laughs> that's destructive fear. Constructive fear is the part that would step in and say, what's going wrong here? Let's not get reactive. Let's just look at the red flags. This person's being cruel. This person's being this. This person. Okay, what's my part in that? Well, I've been taking it. You know, I've not been standing up for myself. I've been trying. You know, I've been being a doormat. Oh, I've been afraid. This is one I hear a lot. I'm afraid of confrontation. Right. And so as you become aware of your power, that's what constructive fear is. And again, this is where it gets a little tricky, Richard. Destructive fear is loud and bombastic and darn sneaky. <laughs> constructive fear is not so loud, which is why we sometimes miss it. And we live in a very loud, toxic world. So slowing down to hear that really soft, good message, that can be a little tough. And here's another piece that gets in the way. A lot of people self-medicate. And so when they're running for, you know, whether it's beer, drugs, oxy, whatever it is, all which are, you know, feeding grounds for for um, destructive fear because they, they, they just, anesthetize the system. They don't take care of a problem. They just put a Band-Aid over top, right, much like a psychoactive um, prescription. So the idea is to slow it down and listen to the constructive fear because it is wise. It is guiding. It is helpful and loving and supportive in nature. So then this person who is suffering in this abusive relationship might say, okay, well, then what do I need? And this is the cool part. Then you start setting goals. What do I need? Well, I need to start talking to my partner. I need to let him or her know how I feel. I need to let him or know, her know what's going to work for me and what isn't going to work for me. And then maybe the person can't even quite get there and needs to go to a support group or seek out a psychotherapist. It's one of the reasons I run a low-cost women's support group every Thursday night so that people who can't afford one-on-one therapy, women can come and get some support from me and other women, right? And so maybe you need some support in finding your truth. And I watch this happen every day of my life when I'm practicing when I'm working as a clinician, I watch people come in and begin to transform their lives. Sometimes it's, it doesn't start for a few sessions. 
sometimes one or two sessions will already get somebody's gears going, not because of magic, but because I give them the space to hear their thoughts, to reflect, and to give them positive support. And then, with armed with wisdom, armed with validation and support, whoever is, you know, then can start taking these steps. The main goal it would be, I want a healthy relationship, right? And that may mean leaving this relationship, the toxic one, but we don't know that yet. And then doing the work that needs to be done so that you can discuss it with your partner, maybe ask your partner to go to therapy with you. But here's the beauty, Richard, with or without that partner. That individual who has been doing all of that work, he or she will have grown so much in inner awareness, in strength, in courage, in emotional intelligence, and all of that is the constructive fear allowing you to grow and blossom and then as you really take the action, your life one step at a time transforms. And I had a client who went through this journey whose comment, it just never found a better comment. She would come to me and she would say, I feel like my life's not changing. I feel like it's not changing. And I would say, well, this has changed and this has changed and this has changed. And, you know, have faith. I'm here for you. And one day she came in, and again, I reminded her, this has changed. And she goes, I get it. I am starting to see it. It's been six months, but I'm starting to see it. It is like I'm a giant ship in the water. And the turning of the ship from the left shore, that really toxic shore I was so used to seeing, was slow. It was so slow that I didn't see that it was changing directions. But now, as my... My gaze is more oriented toward the right shore. I'm not there yet, but I can see a different landscape. And sometimes I look back at that left shore and say, how did I ever live there? And that is transformational fear at work. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? And it's That's so wonderful. beautiful because everyone... Everyone, if you just have the tools and if you're just patient and kind and loving with yourself, every person can do it. It's not an easy journey, but I, as I alluded to earlier, to me it's the only journey. You know, my dad, I was too young to understand it, but he would often say, you know, an unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that might be Socrates, I forget. But I really believe that, and maybe he brainwashed me, but if he did it in that way, it was a very good way <laughs> because it is about examining our lives, not trusting that somebody else is going to examine it for us, but, but knowing that it's important for us to examine our lives, not with an eye to blaming the self or blaming others. I have, like, blame is not part of my, my makeup, right? It is about looking at what we got wrong, doing less of it, finding the lesson, looking at what we're doing right that gives us joy, doing more of that, and then continuing on that path knowing that it's an endless journey. I had this darling client. I get this question a lot, but this darling client came in last week or the week before, and he said, 
well, you know, I'm really hoping for the end of this journey. I think I'm getting it kicked now. I think, I think I've got my whole psychological world wrapped up now. <laughs> and I just laughed. And I said, yes, you are so right. You do have this part of the journey really wrapped up. But please don't set yourself up in thinking that there aren't going to be. You have really good foundational tools now. But please don't think that it means you're going to be free of challenges in the future. It just means you'll have the tools to make the challenges a little easier. <laughs> yeah, Darling, you stop learning. <laughs> that's very that's very cute. The idea of like, okay, got it, check. I've got it all figured out. That's an amazing idea. I'm, well, I'm, and that's it, what. Oh, sorry. Ahead. That's no, what pills promise us. They promise us that vacant. I mean, it's it's a vacant promise. They tell us that if you take this pill, your life will be perfect. And as you so wisely said, what you ultimately see, and I see it with, and clients tell me, yeah, I started taking this or that, and I feel a little less anxious. I feel a little, but I don't feel like myself. I feel flat, right? I feel flat. And that's why pills aren't the answer. Again, they may be beneficial in getting people to a starting place, and for some people they will be a lifelong companion, and there's no shame in that. You know, we're not all made the same, but at the same time, every individual deserves assistance. We don't come with handbooks. Every individual deserves assistance for taking care, addressing the underlying problems. And again, that's one of the reasons I wrote Joy from Fear. So if people can't afford therapy, they can get the book and use it in a woman's support group, a men's support group, a book club, self-work. And it is, you know, I can't treat everybody, right? But I can offer, offer a book that will get somebody on their journey. And I, because, people, because we're all worth it. We are, joy is available for all of us. It is there. It's just we don't. We aren't given a handbook on how to get it. Oh, so many directions I want to go, but we're <laughs> closing in. There's so many. There may have to be a part two of this because it's just. It just makes so much sense that the not, as I say, coming from having been an herbalist for many decades. Wow, it's so true. Many decades, really. Wow that there is no quick fix when people used to come in the herb store and they'd want a, like, I have this, I want to take something and make it stop. Really? I've never thought that way. I've always, I'm a believer in tonic herbs, long-term beneficial effect. And it's just not a thing where you can just, you know, this is why we have an issue. I'll pick on oxycodone because it's in the news so much. Pain is an indicator of something in a state of imbalance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the body shouting, hey, over here, something needs to be looked at. And I think in your world, the, the fear or another word you would prefer is an indicator of something that's in a state of imbalance. And we need to figure out what that is. You can't just take a pill for that inflammation in your knee and think that's fixing it. There's something that needs to be looked at. And I, I believe that's why I like your book so much is because you're really saying, no, we can't just take a pill and cover this up because that's I'm like you. I feel that taking a pill, I'm not opposed to taking something for pain, but figure out what the pain is and why the pain is there. 
And that's exactly what you're talking about. Look at the pain, find the pain, look at the pain. You know, wolves would sniff at the pain and go and lick at it and see if it's going to heal or if we need to, you know, do something. They would, I, I really like wolves and how they live because they're very, they're pack oriented. They really care about each other. They stop and play about every 30 minutes, you know, take a break and have play. And they often times let the weakest of the pack lead because they don't want to leave anybody behind. What a great thing. What a great lifestyle. That's amazing. And I so I didn't know that part about how they let someone lead, the weak one lead sometimes. That's beautiful. Yeah. And the wolf that's born with the slowest uh, I would call it heart rate variability, but the sort of the resting heart rate is the is chosen by the pack as the leader. It's not by dominance. It's by calmness and holding a space and a whole other show. But anyway, so I'm very fond of wolves and how they I'm are as an example. Too, yes, hmm. and I, yes, that makes sense. I can and, and so I think this is in the same category of, of fear is such a powerful immunosuppressive from again from my perspective immunosuppressive adrenal stressor microbiome stressor it's a foundational thing and it doesn't want to be covered up it wants to be like hey it's like a pain going hey something needs to be looked at here let's figure this out the body is is striving toward homeostasis it wants to be in balance it doesn't want to be medicated and sort of go ooh that's really weird but i feel less of something absolutely Absolutely, you're right. We could go on and on. I really wanted to talk to you today about relationships and two things that we didn't get to. I mean, a billion things we didn't get to, it seems like, but um, as well as more on wolves. But, um, you know, <laughs> essential qualities in relationships, self-esteem. Um, what was another one I really was really excited to talk to you about? The idea of the feminine and the masculine and how I we can revamp that in our lives to look at it more as balancing energy instead of the split of the, you know, something more gender neutral. So so much more to talk about, but next time. There will be a part two. I can tell you now there will be a part two. We will talk about all of these things. Um, but for the moment, where would you like people to find Joy from Fear? And Joy do you do classes online yet? I, not yet. My schedule's a bit a bit wonky because I have a, a second book coming out in October with the same publisher, so it's been a little bit mm. a little bit of a it's, it's been busy and my practice is busy. But I am going to do an online class because I think it is um, so important to do that. So I will keep you posted on that. But people can find Joy from Fear. Let me promote local bookstores, please. Go on IndieBound. You can find IndieBound on my website, and you can put in your, your zip code and, and find find Joy from Fear locally. Um, in Sonoma County, a couple of our local bookstores and shops do carry it, um, including Copperfields um, and, uh, and a few others. Um, and as well... It is available on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. It is also available on Audible, on Apple Books. And this is a really important piece to know because Joy from Fear is all about you and your journey. Please purchase an inexpensive binder to go with, 
to go with you on your journey. That binder will become a giant love letter to yourself and a and a testament to your journey. So whether you're doing you know a print book or an audible type of a, type book, um, an audio book, please you know get yourself a simple journal and um, you can find me on my website drcarlamanley.com facebook Dr. Carla Manley, twitter instagram linkedin all the regular spots wonderful thank you so much we have to stop i have so many <laughs> questions do. but we must stop <laughs> all right uh, thank you dr manley that was fabulous and there will be a part 2 i'm telling everybody now uh, everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you uh, next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>